Brady described it. Um, the offering that we take is for these things. And uh, it's because we love Jesus so much and because we take very seriously his great commission um, to go into all the world and to preach and to teach the good news of who he is and his plan of salvation that uh, there are definitely a couple of things I want you to be aware of slash praying for in the next little bit. Um, this Wednesday, a team here at the church will be leaving for Wuj. Uh, it's in Poland and uh, it's pronounced Wuj, but it is actually spelt L-O-D-Z, the L has that little line through the middle of it. And um, so we're going to be there uh, working with a new ministry, uh, new, new to us, named Pro-Am, that is doing a lot of great work uh, in the eastern part, or sorry, the western part of, uh, of Poland. And there's just a lot of work that is being done, a lot of transformation that is happening in people's lives. And so we do not currently have a European connection with our ministries. And so we're definitely wanting to see if this is going to be one uh, that we will develop a partnership with and start heading there on a, uh, on a periodic basis to, to, to preach the good news about who Jesus Christ is, to make much of him in that way. Um, and so that's something that you can be praying for. We're going to be there for about 11 days. Um, and then immediately following that, actually, there's another team that is going to be leaving for the Dominican Republic. Earlier this year, you may remember, after I had come back from a trip to Colombia with Compassion International, I was really... Uh, overwhelmed and convicted that there is an incredible ministry uh, that, that happens with Compassion International that is making a difference, uh, putting an end to childhood poverty. And I love this tag. It's not just a tagline. It's not a pitch, but it's, uh, it's everything to them in the name of Jesus. And there's actually some recent studies that are describing uh, the nine major organizations in the world that do some kind of child sponsorship program. And the one that is uh, not just most effective, but the one that is clearly effective as, not, as being not effective in terms of all of the other ones have, have a very low degree of uh, success rate. Compassion stands out uh, above and far beyond the others. Uh, now, you could say that that's a sociological thing. Well, you know, um, whenever there's a support group, support groups create that true. I'm not disagreeing with that. But compassion will tell you that it's more than that. And the five, uh, five people that I met, particularly three young ladies sitting around a meal, described the in the name of Jesus part that changed their lives. Um, that gave them a different understanding of the world and a different understanding of their responsibility. And it was such a privilege and such a joy. So when I came back from that trip, I said, listen, compassion is something we want to continue to work with here at Sunnybrook, but don't go sponsor a child yet because we're going to find a country and work with compassion. And so it looks like the Dominican is where we're going to go. And so there's going to be a team of us um, there looking at three particular churches just west of Santo Domingo, um, uh, the Dominican Republic, and having an opportunity to meet those pastors and to check out that ministry. So that's what our giving goes to, but that's also what our prayers go to, that God might be made known in those parts of the world. And we are, we are excited about opportunities where there's going to be sports camps that are going to be done in Poland um, or reading programs that are going to be happening in the Dominican Republic. But it all revolves around the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, that's who we are. That is our, of all of our convictions that we have, that is our deepest one. Why? Because we hear the, the gospel, we read the biblical truth, and that's the one that just comes out so clear and so strong that there is a God 
and that we were made in his image, that we rebelled against him, that we needed someone to rescue us, and God in his goodness and in his sovereignty had a plan from the beginning and sent his son and his son died for us and was raised again. That's the story of the Bible. And here we are this morning as we're wrapping up um, the Gospel of Matthew. We've got two more, uh, two more texts that we need to work through. And today we get to celebrate the resurrection, which is a truth claim about something that happened that shapes and changes everything. No matter what the cost, no matter what the, um, the intrusion upon our lives. It's true. Jesus was the Son of God and they killed him. And God raised him from the dead, and that proves that he is who he says he was, and now we have to deal with that. And we have an opportunity to, better than just dealing with it, we have an opportunity to respond to it. That's how the Bible describes it. Here, I want you to respond to this amazing truth claim. In May of 2006, you, you may not know the director. The director's name was Davis Guggenheim. And Davis put together a documentary on something that he felt was being neglected, and that was climate change. The name of the movie was what? An Inconvenient Truth. I'm not here to, to give a premise for the movie itself. I know that it kind of stirs up a lot of controversy. There are those that absolutely deny that climate change has taken place, and there are those that just think literally it's right around the corner and we're all going to die. But the part I want to hang on is, to, is the, the title and the premise of the movie, which is this, that there is something that is wrong, that is broken in the world, that we can actually do something about it. So here is the truth that the movie claims, that there is climate change that is taking place. And, and, and by the way, that truth and the need for us to respond to that truth is going to be inconvenient. It's going to have to change the way you live. It's going to have to change the way you spend your time and your money. It's, it's going to change a lot about how you live your life. But the sake of the world depends upon it. There's a lot of people who buy it, a lot of people who believe it, a lot of people who are incredibly passionate about it, a lot of people who are willing to completely reorganize and center their lives around this truth claim, no matter how inconvenient it is. And I get that. Like, I, I totally get that. I actually believe that there is something incredibly broken in the world. And I actually believe rather strongly that there is a truth that exists out there that, that would bring the salvation of the world. And I believe it's incredibly inconvenient. I believe that this truth is so powerful and is so demanding that it demands your very life and your very all. That part I can understand. But what the Bible describes in its search for truth, though, um, it, it's not as simple as, hey, there's this idea out there that you need to deal with. Notice this. The Bible doesn't just describe an idea. This is true. It, it describes God. And he is true. Jesus isn't one who brings ideas. Jesus is one who brings himself. And he says, deal with me. Respond to me. 
No, no, there are ideas, there are thoughts that exist within his preaching and in his teaching, what, what, the, what the New Testament calls the way of Jesus, the following the, the teachings of Jesus. And they're true, Jesus claims, I am the way and the truth and the life. But in this search, there is definitely um, not just the inconvenience of it, but there is a, a real complexity in pursuing it. And what we're doing today, and, and, and don't turn to Matthew yet, I want you to turn to John chapter 21st. I want to look at a couple of verses at the end of John's gospel, just after the resurrection, that describes just how incredibly demanding and powerful that this search for truth can, can, can produce in us, um, for many people, like conflicting ideas. There's a lot of stuff being written, um, it's been written for a long time, about the paradox of faith. Because I know a lot of very strongly believing people who still have questions. I know a lot of people who are really, really confident who still wonder. And the Bible does the exact same thing. We're actually going to see around the resurrection accounts, it, it looks like a contradiction. It's not. It's just complex. Thomas. You know his first name, right? Doubting? I'm sure he's more than that, but it's what we know him to be as. It's like I only know how to describe him as Doubting Thomas. You know, Doubting Thomas. I'm sure he's not only doubting, but this is where that idea comes from. John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25, the disciples have seen Jesus and they believe in him. They had the benefit of seeing the resurrected Jesus. And now all of a sudden Thomas comes onto the scene. Now Thomas, who was one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, must have been from the state of Missouri, I guess. But unless I see, do you, you, you kind of uh, get it? Do you kind of appreciate that? Is that you? Are you the one, hey, listen, I, I know they're excited, and I know they're just, they, I know they totally believe, but, but unless I see, I, I don't know if what he's claiming here is, is anything like inappropriate. We might want to just call it natural. Interestingly enough, though, he's never praised for his intellectual honesty. In, in fact, Jesus and, uh, is going to describe kind of blessed are those who do not yet see and yet believe. But Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and then place my finger into the mark of the nails and then place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, be careful reading that because you can read it like where he's like, I'm not going to believe. But, but it could be almost like a cry of desperation, don't you think? Like he, he could almost be like he's saying it like I want to see. You don't think I want to believe? You don't think I hope what you're telling me is true, Peter? But unless I see, I just, I can see no path where I'm going to believe. I've, I've dealt with both people. I've been both people. And it's also good for us to know that not only is the Bible honest about those like Thomas who doubt, but the Bible is also very clear as to why the Gospels were written. 
The Bible is not just random information that, uh, that God thinks you should have. It's, it's, it has to come with information, but it's not just, here are some things you need to know and things that you could know too and things that you need to know. It's more than that. John chapter 20, verse 31. Just, just go a few more verses later. This is an underlinable verse. This is a verse you need to have underlined. Because it, it basically, it, it directs or it skews all of the information in the Gospels looking for something. It's looking for a response. So it's not just saying that Jesus is. It's saying that Jesus is, therefore, what are you going to do with it? Truly, it's interesting that there's a, a sequel to An Inconvenient Truth. And um, the the tagline of the new one is An Inconvenient inconvenient Truth, a sequel. And it's either like uh, truth becoming power or the power of truth. It's the idea of that the fact that this is so true, it now empowers us to go out and change the world. (laughs) Again, I like that idea. I buy that. There should be some kind of therefore or some kind of, if it really is true, then, then we really should listen and adapt and change our lives, no matter how inconvenient it might be, if it's true. And so John says in verse 31, verse 30 basically says, man, all the things that Jesus did, if we tried to write them down, the world could not contain the books. But then verse 31 says why he wrote it. And he says this, these things were written so that, like I had a purpose. I'm not just I'm not just like some kind of fan who thinks Jesus is really, really cool. Um, I didn't have a book deal. I'm writing this so that something would happen. Look at this. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this down. In this search for truth that Peter and John saw with their own eyes, in this search for truth that Thomas wrestled with, the women are about to see and the guards are about to see and the religious leaders are going to have to deal. Jerusalem is going to have to deal with a very inconvenient truth that the Jesus that they crucified, the women claim it, the disciples claim it, Jesus is no longer dead. And he's not raised again like Lazarus. He's raised again like like no one else. He's raised again like Jesus. First time ever. And the end has now begun in him. And that changes everything. Here's how Matthew describes it. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. And we're going to run through all the way up to verse 15. And we'll leave next week for the Great Commission. When it was evening, so last week when we left off, Jesus had died. And it described the women who were there. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. When you see these names in the Bible, remember that these books were written roughly in the same time period uh, when this was going on. And so when you see a name, it's like, so if you want to go talk to Joseph, you can ask him about it. And Terry Carpenter was there. And so was Greg Baker. And so was, okay, why why the names? I'll tell you why the names. (laughs) So if you ever have any any questions, talk to Joe. You know, Joe of Arimathea. He can answer some of your questions. So, 
rich man named Joseph from Arimathea, who was also a disciple, or another word for just a follower of Jesus, not one of the 12, but one who had followed Jesus. Verse 58, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in a new tomb, which had been cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone on the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, so this would be Saturday, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. Then the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So it is very, very secure. Verse one. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, which they'd been there. So they understand what's going on and And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, by the way, there are, in terms of the occurrences, um, I always like to remind people that uh, he is writing an account, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, writing an account, and there's always going to be moments in between when they're leaving and walking from one place to the other. That's why I get so excited um, about thinking about being back in Jerusalem. It's, it's fun to be at the place of the skull where the crucifixion was, and then walk to where they believed the tomb was, and then to be able to walk back to where the, the trial happened. And then to be able to walk over to where Jesus was tried and put in Caiaphas's basement. And then to be walked back up to the temple area where Jesus actually preached. And then back down through the Kidron Valley and then back up onto the Mount of Olives. And walking that, and it, it truly, it's, I, I was surprised at how it wasn't as far as I thought it was going to be. But a lot of thinking can happen while you're walking and trying to process this. If there's one thing I love about the Bible, again, it's the reality of the of the, of the complexity and the depths of people just like you and me trying to process truth claims about who God is or who Jesus is and then the implications on our lives. So here we have in this instance, the guards are there and they see the angel and they're terrified. The women then are there and they have the same kind of idea. They have the same fear. Look at verse five. Same angel producing the same kind of dread. But the angel said to the women, looks like they didn't say this to the guards. Guards run off. (laughs) But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Like, I get why you're afraid, but don't be afraid. Like, fear is probably an appropriate response because I am an angel and it does look pretty amazing, but calm down, it's okay. It's good for you to realize both of those things can be true. I get why you're afraid, but you don't need to be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, where he used to be, where he was when he was dead, but that place is now empty. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. 
So they departed quickly from the, from the tomb, and I love this statement, with what? With fear and great joy. Man, now that, that explains a lot of life, that, that, that short little phrase, doesn't it? But man, the resurrection of Jesus, it, it, it's kind of, I think, the good side. Morgan made this comment in one of our staff meetings the other day. I love having Easter in July. Because sometimes we can get, just get all wrapped up in Easter when it's Easter. We almost know how to get dressed up. We're prepared for it. We've, we've got, you know, the meal in the oven and the family is coming and the kids are dressed up and people are wearing hats again, right? So you're just kind of used to it. It's, you know, it's that time in March or early April and it's Easter time. So you're kind of expecting it. And she said, I just love resurrection in July because you just don't expect it. And when you don't expect it, it probably makes sense with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. It's interesting. It seems to be a common phrase, doesn't it? I love that. I get why you're afraid. It's probably appropriate for you to be afraid, but don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Same message that the angels gave. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His, came, his disciples came by at night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, because should the governor find out that these soldiers had not been derelict of their duties, had been irresponsible, it was death. To, to fail a watch at night was death. So should there be a problem, if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, we'll buy him off, and we'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And then notice Matthew, this is very interesting because... I've always, whenever I think of the Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel and how it ends, I always think of the one great commissioning. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you to the very end. I mean, that, the great commissioning is what I think about. But then when I was reading, I'm, there's two great commissionings. Well, one's not great. One's actually a lie. Well, one's actually meant to propagate an, an, an untruth. One is, is saying that the disciples stole the body, and the other one is saying, no, 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 Jesus was raised from the dead. You actually have two commissionings. One from the religious establishment, say the disciples stole the body, and another one that says, no, Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and look what Matthew says here, just in case. Now you see why he puts names in his gospel. Now you see why the gospel writers had no problem saying, go and check this out, see if this is true. I'm not just asking you to believe me, kind of just this, you know, stop all reasoning, don't go out. No, Luke actually, in his, his gospel, very beginning in chapter one, says, I carefully investigated all of these things. I went back and I took a look. I wanted to know. Look at what it says, the end of verse 15. And this story, that's the lie that they started, has been spread among the Jews to this day. <laughs> now, one thing I find fascinating is that the truth on both sides of it 
is just absolutely terrifying. It seems like it's absolutely terrifying that an angel were to come and that the stone were to be rolled back and that Jesus would be raised from the dead. The guards were afraid. And the angel, even though tried to calm the women, the, the women still left absolutely afraid with joy. And, and yet, it, it seems like it's the one thing that it's hard to find anybody, today anyway, with our modern sensitivities and with our modern quest for, um, I guess, a, kind of an understanding that kind of looks at the text or looks at life in a more of a detached way. The one thing I very seldom ever meet is someone who is absolutely terrified by the resurrected Jesus. It seems like when you look at the text that, that fear is a, is a natural response to this. Jesus doesn't go, why are you afraid? That makes no sense. Look how cute I am. I look just like the flannel graph pictures when you were a kid. Why are you afraid? No, Jesus, I, I get it. Do not be afraid. See, that's why I wonder sometimes if there's a, a, a little bit of a disservice that we do by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and not responding and not responding and not responding to the truth that somehow dulls our senses. That Jesus, you ready for this? Died and God raised him from the dead. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Anybody just feel terrified? Me neither. But I wonder if there's something broken in that. About six years ago, terrible tornado tore through Joplin, Missouri. I had an opportunity to, to be there right after the event happened. Uh, my brother-in-law has got a lot of connections back in Canada, and so he let me know that uh, there were a number of news agencies that were, I mean, as you probably know, uh, all of America and a lot of the world were absolutely amazed by just the, the scope and the breadth of it. And a lot of the, those places in the world that don't have tornadoes, they're fascinated. I mean, even we have them all the time, and we're somewhat fascinated by them, right? So imagine if you're Canadian, doubly fascinated. So Mike said to me, hey, by the way, I'm going to have some newspaper people call you. Do you mind? Or some news uh, agencies, do you mind? I said, no, that'd be great. I'd have no problem at all. So six times while I was there, I would get a call from some news agency, and um, they would literally interview me while I was on, you know, I was the reporter on the ground. For This is the best Canada can do. Isn't that sad? So all of their stuff they put together, this is what they were able to come up with. So there I am, and, and this was the, the one question that all six... Uh, News people wanted to ask me was, you know, they'd ask, you know, so what does it look like? Describe what you see. And so I'm doing all those things. But they were fascinated by this. Why don't people take better care of themselves when tornadoes are, 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 are given as a warning? I said, well, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> like, it's not that we're dumb, right? But why, how many of you, when you hear there's a tornado warning going, I got to go outside and see this? Where does that come from? That is so foreign to a Canadian. Like any kind of tornado means run for your life. Shouldn't tornado watch mean run for your lives, we're all gonna die? Shouldn't tornado warning mean we really are going to die? They could not fathom. And so I began to tell them that, that what happened, even it was my wife and I's experience, that the first few times that you hear about a tornado watch or a tornado warning and you're not used to it, you really are, your whole body is on high alert. But then after a while, 
It's just hard to feel the same way. I go back to Joplin quite a bit, and I remember first being there, and they had extra tornado shelters everywhere. Um, a whole new level of alert and, and responsive. We need to be, we need to be doing this. And, and over, just over six years, they've got memorials up, but you can just feel it, right? It's just hard to be that alert that long. It's like a human tendency to hear the truth and hear the truth and hear the truth and hear the truth to the point where you just kind of lose the inconvenience or the power that resides within the truth. And I genuinely believe that has happened to the church. I'm really not here to make you feel bad about it. I've experienced it myself. I know what it's like on Easter time now to to want to feel the things that I hear in the text. Uh, Trying to stir them up within me. I mean, the first time I went, I've been twice. The first time I went to where Jesus died and then the empty tomb, I'm thinking, okay, brace yourself. This is gonna be, you're gonna just fall apart. You're going to, and I didn't. Now hear me, it was awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, I, I thought that I would like kind of roll around on the ground and cry. And I mean, I'm a pretty emotional person. I really thought I'd be a mess, but wow, that's where it was, huh? Wow. Lots of thoughts, lots of things processing. It was just different. Actually, I had far more of an emotional response the second time. I wonder I wonder if maybe some of the the difficulty that comes in dealing with the reality that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah and he died and God raised him from the dead. I wonder if that has been softened by our, and I get it, by our intense desire to make Jesus palatable, um, more likable, more appreciated. I mean, don't you want pictures of Jesus where he's like warm and, and inviting? Come here, give me a hug. Like you don't want scary Jesus, do you? You don't want terrifying Jesus, do you? Especially when the kids are around. Can't have that. And I wonder if that has lulled us into a wrong understanding with the best of intentions a wrong understanding of who Jesus truly is. Like, I love that statement that both the angel and then ultimately Jesus says, do not be afraid. It's almost like I need to hear him say that to calm me in his presence. Like, if he doesn't say that, I think I'm gonna become undone. If he doesn't say that, I think I'm gonna fall apart. If he doesn't say that, the sheer magnitude of his presence is so overwhelming and is so powerful. See, Jesus comes not to be marketed and not not somehow to become more likable. He comes in the fullness and the reality of who he is. And and I I really believe it it is important for the church not to overemphasize that, just to preach the whole truth about who he is. I don't want to try to preach a terrifying version of Jesus. I want to preach the fullness of who Jesus Christ is so that you know that when you, when, you, when you see him, there is a sense in which you fall down and you say, I am unworthy. 
And then he lifts up your head and says, but I have died for you. One of my personal concerns is that when a lot of people who I know, when they finally meet Jesus, they're going to say, this isn't the guy you told me about. Can I ask you, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, friends, is the Jesus you describe to those you love an accurate picture of the Jesus that we see in the scriptures? He's not only terrifying, but he keeps saying, like, do not be afraid, it is I, over and over and over again. Let me show you something in the Bible. I love the truths that exist there. Turn to Mark's gospel and see how he deals with this. Mark chapter 16, verse 8 has a a strong parallel to the section that we're reading here. And um, if you turn there, actually turn in your Bibles, you'll be able to see it on the screen, but there's a part that is not on the screen that is actually in your Bible. And I promise you, I'm not pulling some kind of a David Copperfield or David Blaine thing. It was in your Bible before you Uh, It was already there in your Bible. If you look between verses eight and nine, some of you may, this may be the first time you've ever seen this. It shouldn't have a statement there in your Bible that says um, something about the later verses. uh, It should say something like Mark chapter 16, verses nine through 20 does not appear in in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Do you see that? By the way, that's just the Bible wanting to be really, really honest about the manuscript evidence. Basically, what it is saying is, is that in about the 17 or 1800s, when the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel were found, it ended at verse 8. Which means it would have ended this way. So you've already seen from Matthew's gospel, the women go to the tomb, the angel says, go and tell. Right here. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling. And astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of the gospel. And the early church hated that. <laughs> They're like, you don't end it that way. You cannot end with a phrase. When, when would that ever make sense? No, 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 no. Kind of tell the rest of the story, which by the way, I'm sure Mark did. Mark is writing down, it looks like the sermons of Peter, and I'm sure Peter told the rest of the story I find it fascinating that even the Christian, the early witness said, you cannot leave the gospel on the word afraid. So Mark did. Mark looks like someone gave to Mark these words to kind of reconcile it, to bring it together. Which, by the way, Matthew does finish the story. It appears that Mark wants it to end with the truth that after the angel had spoken to them, they just went away scared to death. Didn't know what to say. And then Jesus had to appear to them to calm them down and to give them peace and purpose. It's a terrifying truth that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah, and he died for our sins, and God raised him from the dead. And as a church, I'm not just talking about... um, I'm not just talking about the Western world and I'm not just talking about the American church. I'm talking about Sunnybrook. I'm talking about like my teaching and preaching needs to do a better job as I preach it somehow 
relaying information that brings us both fear and great joy. I know what some of you are thinking. That's going to hurt attendance. I don't think that's going to really work. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Someone much smarter than me. Last week, I had Friedrich Nietzsche, who's just a very depressed German. I've got a, a good American who ended up, kind of the opposite of Jim Johnson. Um, he was an American who ended up like doing ministry in Canada. So I'm the opposite of that. Canadian who ended up doing his ministry in America. A.W. Tozer gave a statement that I absolutely love and that I was reading this week in my book study. The book is entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And here is how A.W. Tozer describes this terrifying truth that exists in the presence of God in his chapter on God's goodness. He says this, the greatness of God rouses fear within us. It should rouse fear within us, God's greatness. His goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. Not great? The greatness of God rouses fear. His goodness says, do not be afraid. And then Tozer says, fear and not be afraid. That is the paradox of faith. See, some of us don't like paradoxes. <laughs> so we either have this terrifying God and there's absolutely no joy and no peace and no, no, no nothing. He's gonna get you and he's gonna make it hurt. That's not true. And then there is this God that is so sweet and so cuddly. He, he would never wanna scare you. He would never want to the truth about God is he is terrifyingly good. That it makes every sense for you to be afraid. But do not fear. And that only makes sense in the resurrection of Jesus. Just like only the cross can bring together God's mercy and God's wrath, God's judgment and God's reward So we've talked about the terrifying truth. Uh, I want to end with this last idea that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the biblical account, then becomes undeniable. Thomas ends up seeing and believing. John ends up proclaiming. Paul, who started out persecuting, ends up being totally sold out to the, the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and he is worthy of my entire life. And the inconvenient truth of following Jesus Christ has now become my greatest joy. The undeniable truth, but, but listen, when I say the undeniable truth, here's what I'll be honest about. Lots of people still deny it. Just this past week, 5.30 at night, and I just get a call from a young lady, and she says, hey, by the way, I'm here talking to a friend. They don't believe in the Bible. Will you please fix that for me? <laughs> sure. Put them on speakerphone. I can take care of that. Yeah. Meatloaf still in for 20 minutes. Give me some time. And we got into, on speakerphone, they're in some coffee shop somewhere, and I'm dealing with someone who grew up in church. He seemed very knowledgeable. He was using names like Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny and Pliny the Younger. Those are all Roman historians describing stuff. And so we got into this wonderful conversation about whether or not we should believe or should not believe the gospel accounts. He swore the gospel accounts could not be trusted. They are biased witnesses. It's not the first time I've heard that. It's not the first time I've wondered that. 
But after about 20 minutes, I just figured, we're not going to be able to solve this here, are we? So when I say the undeniable truth, you do know that people deny it. When I do say that we need to go and tell that the, all nations that, remember the money that you gave earlier? We're going to go tell all the nations that Jesus has been raised from the dead and we are going to ask them to deal with this inconvenient truth and, and to fold their lives into the life of Jesus that they might have eternal life. It's an incredible story, but we're going to keep telling that and, and there'll be people who will still deny it. There are people in this room right now that can't believe it. Want to believe it? Can't believe it. Don't want to believe it? Can't believe it. People are trying to believe it. I get it. (laughs) In many ways, I'm still sometimes all of those people. But I believe it. See, it's very interesting, and and I'll tell you my, my personal journey. My personal journey was a quest to find out the truth about who Jesus Christ was and about the resurrection and the death, all of those things, so that I would be able to move my life from believing these things to be true to knowing these things will be true. You been there? Oh yeah. I've spent a lot of my life trying to move from believing, which just sounds so wishy-washy, doesn't it? And I don't want to believe, you know what I want? I want to know. I want to know. And then I began to realize the more that I dealt with this book, this book is more than comfortable with believing. And on a philosophical note, I would argue there may be no other way of knowing. That's a whole other fun philosophical conversation. But this Bible keeps saying, no, I ask you to believe it. I'm asking you to put your faith in it. I'm helping you to trust it. By the way, I'm totally cool with you trying to verify it historically and trying to verify it experientially, trying to verify it existentially. Nothing wrong with those things. But in the end, you're still going to have to believe it. Back in my college days, a young man came up to me after I was teaching a class and I could just tell Sam was just torn inside and he just wanted, he wanted it to be just, you know, clear and provable. And I finally looked at him and I said, you do know, Sam, the book that God gave us is totally fine with believing things. In fact, it seems to like lift it up as the greatest way of knowing things. So there's no way in which you can really own this whole idea without coming to grips with the fact that not everybody's going to believe it. Not everybody does. Are you okay with that? There's two stories. One of them is that Jesus was raised from the dead and, and, and look at all the evidence that we have for that. But you do know there's another story. Don't you kind of wish that other story just never existed? Matthew, for some reason, has no problem telling you it does. I would argue the truth is that strong. And not just Matthew's day, but up until this day, that story has been spread about. Still going on. But there is another story that is being told about Jesus that the church has told. Not that his body was stolen, but that Jesus Christ was in fact raised, just like he said. And that story changes everything. I want you to hear from one of those eyewitnesses in terms of how passionate he is regarding it. You, you can turn to it or you can let me read it over you, but 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is one of those verses I love to go back and read. You might say, yeah, he's a disciple, he's biased. <laughs> Man, but I'll tell you, he was sure inconvenienced by the truth for his entire life. 
dying a faithful death. I have a hard time believing he was that deluded. He did all of what he did for a lie. Yeah, I live this life, body's in the back of my car, but I still, uh, here's what John says. Writing to the church at Ephesus. So this is not in his gospel, it's in his first letter. Chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That's his name for Jesus. The life was made manifest. A word we usually don't use, but it's like revealed or made known. The life, Jesus, was made manifest, was revealed to us, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. We swear to it. We announce it. Take me to court. I'll stand by my word. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was now manifest, made known, and revealed to us. John isn't saying, hey, I got this really, really cool idea. And even though it's not really true, I think it could really help your life. He's saying, no, I have been, I've been fully embraced by not an idea, but by Jesus. And he walked this earth and he died and he was raised again. I've seen it and I've touched him. I know, Thomas, you still wish you could touch, right? I, I get it, I know. But John did. And his testimony means a lot to me. But John also makes sure that we understand that it's not just this testimony that is given, but it is a testimony that we respond to. It is, a, it is, a, it is an inconvenient truth that then transforms our lives. To that I want to conclude with the words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is where the resurrection comes home to live in your life. Paul is writing to a church that is absolutely tormented over the idea of what, what happens to Christians when they die. Where do they go? What about the afterlife? Is, is that whole heaven thing just wishful thinking? And it's funny, Paul doesn't go, well, we've got this really cool idea that even if it isn't true, it'll at least make us get happy. No. Look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Paul says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Some translations have there, the NIV, a number of them have. I don't want you to be ignorant. Don't you love that? Paul, John, they, they, they don't say, man, we want you to be simpletons and not really think these things through. What do they say? No, we want you to have the information. What I don't want you to be as a follower of Jesus Christ is I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know the inconvenient truth that also bring great, brings great hope and peace. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there it is, since we believe in that, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who've died. So do you see how the resurrection has a power of Jesus, has a power within itself that brings hope and peace and comfort for us in every aspect of our lives and even into the next one. That's not just an inconvenient truth. 
That's a powerful truth that brings understanding and hope and peace that is greater than your concerns. It is greater than your wondering. It is greater than your doubts. It is greater than your pain. The truth is like that. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you for the hope and the peace that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. God, I thank you for the terrifying peace that comes in Jesus. And I guess that's why the Bible speaks so clearly of the fact that at the end, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is who he is, the Lord of all. I pray that as a church, both corporately and individually, that we describe Jesus in such a way that those who do not know him from our witness would be able to recognize him on that day. But Father, I am overwhelmed by the fact that even if they don't, there will be no confusion then. Therefore, I pray, Father, that uh, we would find hope and peace and a right response to who Jesus is. And simultaneously, that we would share the inconvenient, hopeful truth about Jesus to everyone we meet and to those that we love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I pray that if you want to continue this conversation more about this inconvenient, hopeful truth, that you will walk this way instead of that way. There will be Stephen ministers and elders that would want to come alongside and to talk and to pray with you. Also, uh, you may notice there's a lot of people missing today. Youthquake, hundred and some people uh, are actually in Colorado, in the mountains, worshiping from our fellowship today, uh, gathering with hundreds of other young people. So be praying for their time in the mountains as they worship God and have a better understanding and appreciation for who Jesus is. Love you guys, God bless, and we'll see you next Sunday.